Welcome to the October 19th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. And thank all of you for praying for me, and I apologize for the fact that I've not been able to do uh, but one podcast in the last maybe week and a half or two weeks, Uh, but I feel like my voice is, is strong enough now that I'm getting back to close to being normal. Uh, so I want to just uh, dig right in and, and hopefully finish this year strong as we uh, look at 2 Thessalonians 2 today on our way to the end of the book of Revelation. Well, today's reading is Isaiah 56 through 58 and 2 Thessalonians 2, but we will focus only on the New Testament in this podcast. So let's get started. Second Thessalonians 2. Okay, so what it appears that was going on is uh, Paul wrote what we call 1 Thessalonians, and it seems as if the church in Thessalonica um, gathered from that, that, and Paul may have even thought that Jesus was going to come back in his lifetime. He was fully prepared for Jesus to come back in his lifetime. He said, those of us, we will meet him in the air. We will meet him in the air. So Paul thought he was going to be alive when Jesus came back. He didn't have a clue uh, when Jesus was going to come back. And uh, Jesus, even as he was walking the earth, did not know. Um, But Paul was speaking of the immediacy of Christ's return, that we need to be ready because he could come at any moment. And so it looks as if the church at Thessalonica read what we call 1 Thessalonians, and some of them sold their property, They quit their jobs. You know, I'm just speculating, but it seems as if this was the case. And they just sat back waiting for Jesus to come. And so Paul got wind of that, and so he wrote the second Thessalonians. And uh, so as he wrote second Thessalonians, basically, he wrote to them the theology or some theological truth regarding the end times to kind of clarify some of their misunderstanding. And the theological truth shows up in this chapter in 2 Thessalonians 2. In 2 Thessalonians 3, the chapter we will look at next, he deals with the pragmatic or the practical matters. He's going to tell them to get back to work and you know live every day as if Jesus could come today. Uh, so let's look at 2 Thessalonians 2. And we're going to look at it verse by verse because there's 17 verses in here. But I also want you to know one more thing before we get started on this. And it's this. One of the things that I tell my uh, systematic theology class on Thursday nights at the church is that they are first-tier doctrines. And uh, you cannot get those wrong. You cannot get those wrong. First-tier doctrines are the doctrines of salvation, you know, salvation by grace through faith. Uh, First-tier doctrines are the person of Jesus. If you deny that Jesus is fully God, then you have tampered with what the Bible says about who Jesus is, and that's a first-tier doctrine. You cannot mess with that. You cannot disagree with that. Certainly, we can grow in our knowledge of it, but if you reject some of it, Well, that's a serious problem because that's a first-tier doctrine. I would put doctrines like eschatology, you know, end-time events, study of the end times. I would put that doctrine at second, even third-tier doctrines. 
where we can still be really good friends. And, uh, you know, you can even, third-tier doctrines, you can even teach in a Sunday school class, you know, at the church. And uh, you can say, hey, I have a different view on end times events. Well, we're not going to panic over that. If you were teaching an untruth about the Trinity or about you were preaching and teaching in your Sunday school class on salvation by works, oh, we have a huge problem, and you can no longer teach that class. But if you say, well, I've got a difference of agreement in how it's going to all play out because as I read the scripture, I come to a different conclusion of what the end time events looks like. Well, that's okay, you know, because there is room for debate on some of this stuff, and it's really not a top-tier doctrine. So I just want you to realize that uh, that I do believe in a literal seven-year tribulation. I do believe in a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ that we read about in Revelation 20, where Jesus is going to reign on this earth before he destroys it. I do believe in uh, the second coming and that there are two phases of that coming. The first phase is the rapture that happens at some point right as the tribulation begins, somewhere right around there. And I do believe that Jesus will come back um, uh, at the end of the seven-year tribulation to set up his throne on planet Earth. And so I believe these things. I have friends that believe uh, believe differently about that. Um, But as long as they are going to the Scripture, as long as they are dealing with the Scripture fairly, then this is a topic where we can have some disagreement. So it's, it's not that big of a deal, all right? So let me just go through this chapter and share with you from my vantage point, you know, some call it a dispensational view. Um, let me... Uh, share with you how it is that I look at these verses, okay? So let's get to, get to the passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming or the revealing, parousia is the Greek word, now concerning the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. So that's the revealing of Jesus. Jesus shows up and we are gathered to him. Now, from my vantage point, from my theological perspective, I'm saying, okay, that's the rapture. You know, Jesus comes in a uh, you know twinkling of an eye, and we are gathered to him. That's the rapture. He said, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, verse 2, not to be easily upset or troubled, either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Okay, so Paul said, I want you to realize that uh, you ought not be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. John 14, right? You know what Jesus said to the disciples? Uh, Paul is saying this to the church at Thessalonica. Don't get upset. You know, if you have somebody that prophesies or a message comes to you supposedly from us or a letter that is signed by somebody that claims to be us, that really just messes with your understanding of end times events, don't let that mess you up. Now, particularly, what were they upset about? He was trying to calm them down. What were they upset about? They were concerned that Jesus had already come and they were left behind. That's what they were concerned about. If you look at the end of verse 2, it says, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. 
The day of the Lord is a phrase that was used in the Old Testament and also is obviously carried over into the New Testament. The day of the Lord is the day or the era or the time or the season when Jesus uh, demonstrates his glory by pouring out his wrath on evil and blessing those that are good, those that are declared righteous because they are saved. The day of the Lord is the day of God's judgment. It's oftentimes called the day of God's wrath. And so in my understanding of end times events, I would say the day of the Lord is the seven-year tribulation. The seven-year tribulation that Jesus has come back. He takes all of the believers who are alive at that time, takes them immediately to be with him, and the day of the Lord, the seven years, begins. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to be troubled by some that would either prophesy or send you a message or write a letter supposedly from us alleging that the day of the Lord has come, that uh, you know that Jesus has already come. And why would they think that they were in the tribulation period? Well, they were being persecuted. They were being persecuted for following Jesus, and from what they had heard from Paul, what he had taught them and preached to them, and then what he had written to them, they believed that's what the tribulation is like, as Christians are going to be persecuted, and so they thought Jesus had already come, taken the saved, and they were in the tribulation period, and they were troubled. And so Paul said, I don't want you to be anxious. I don't want you to be worried. After all, Paul said, I'm still here. <laughs> and so, so Jesus hasn't come back yet. Verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. Don't let anybody trick you. Don't let anybody pull the wool over your eyes. For that day, the day of the Lord, when Jesus comes back in the rapture and the seven-year tribulation begins, he said that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So let's just define our terms a little bit says, for that day will not come, Jesus, the rapture will not happen, the seven-year tribulation period will not happen unless the apostasy first comes. So what's that talking about? Okay, so again, I mean, this is you know, a little bit of interpretation, and, and sometimes even, you know, I'm looking at these verses thinking, okay, I'm scratching my head thinking, I don't really fully understand this either, so I don't want to present that to you. I just want to share with you some things from my vantage point and encourage you to dig in and for you to look. But apostasy is talking about a falling away from truth. Falling away from truth. That is apostasy. And so what this is talking about is people falling away from what is true, falling away from the Lord. Okay, so what is this referring to? Well, I'll give you at least two options, two what I believe to be credible options. This apostasy, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first. That, uh, you know, that it seems to me that that apostasy could speak of the age of the church, that the church of uh, Jesus Christ will fall into apostasy leading up to the time that Jesus returns. After all, didn't Jesus look his, at his disciples one time and say, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
So that seems credible. It seems as if the church of the living God falls away from the truth, falls away from the truth of the gospel, falls away from the truth of who Jesus is and and the relationship that we can have through him based upon his work on the cross. After all, the church, and I use that term very loosely, the church fell into apostasy in which Martin Luther had to speak into it and point out all sorts of grievous offenses. Now, I'm just telling you also, I'm not a Baptist only. I don't believe that Jesus started the Baptist church. He started the true church. And I believe that uh, right now, if you were to look around, I think Baptists are really, really close to to what the church was that Jesus left. I think many uh, evangelical uh, conservative Presbyterian churches, you know, I think some other churches, the congregational churches are in there, that sort of thing. But um, but I certainly don't believe that the, the Catholic Church was the only church in existence. I do believe that there were men and women, boys and girls, and other uh, areas around the world who were not buying into the Catholic dogma of works and indulgences and things like that. But I just want to point out that they claimed to be the church, and they fell into apostasy and had to be brought back. And you know that didn't even fully bring them back. But I'm just saying that that's one of the possibilities is that the church falls into apostasy, that churches no longer proclaim and teach and live out the truth. It could also be that because the day of the Lord, you know, because Jesus comes back and the day of the Lord begins, that all of a sudden you have saved people that are gone and now there's no salt. You are the salt of the earth that holds back moral decay. You are the light of the world that pushes back moral darkness. Well, when you take the salt and light out of the world, all of a sudden you have nothing but apostasy. Um, those who, you know, were not believers, but uh, they certainly weren't as bad as they could. Well, now when there's nothing to hold them back, this could be talking about how that immediately the world just falls into moral corruption almost overnight. So that could be what apostasy is. Maybe it's the church falling into apostasy. Maybe it's the church departing and leaving the world in apostasy. But it says the day that day will not come the day of the Lord the full-fledged day of the Lord the 7-day trip 7-year tribulation will not come until the apostasy happens and the man of lawlessness or the King James says the man of sin is revealed. Now this is the antichrist. The antichrist. I don't believe that this is a world system. I don't believe that this is a group of people that set them up as the antichrist. I do believe that this is one man. One man who was empowered by Satan himself, the man who is doomed to destruction, that this man will show up. And in fact, if you read Revelation, um, Revelation chapter 4 and 5 is the scene in heaven. Revelation chapter 6, you have the first, I believe it's the first seal, and it's a man going out on a white horse uh, with a bow, but he doesn't have an arrow. And so this is, I believe, maybe the Antichrist, but he goes out and he has a bow, but no arrow because he conquers without fighting. There's no bloodshed. He's apparently the world has fallen into disarray and everybody's willing to give relinquish control to one man who holds promise that he can bring everything together. And so the Antichrist is going to be revealed very early on in the seven-year seven tribulation period. 
in verse 4, he he is described. It says, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. Okay, so if we were to go back to the 40 weeks of Daniel, um, you know, and some other things, and I do not claim that that's not one of my fortes. You know, I've dug into tons of places in Scripture. End times events is just not something I've really dug into. Um, But uh, whenever we look at that, from what I do observe, it appears that the seven-year tribulation is divided into uh, three and a half years and then three and a half years. The first three and a half years is the tribulation period. The second three and a half is the great tribulation period. In the tribulation period, the Antichrist is fully visible, but uh, but he is not a brute. He's not overwhelmingly evil during the three and a half period. In fact, during the three and a half uh, year period, the first three and a half years of the seven year tribulation, uh, he's got an alliance with Israel. In fact, I believe that uh, when it says that so he sits in God's temple, it says that in verse four, I believe that literally the temple of Israel is going to be rebuilt. I believe the temple is literally going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And uh, but I don't believe that the Antichrist is going to sit on the temple, sit on the throne in the temple and proclaim himself as God until the three and a half year mark. And that's when he breaks that covenant with Israel. And for the next three and a half years, it is literally hell on earth. As God is raining down his judgments and as Satan has embodied the Antichrist to bring about and to lead an evil, unspeakable evil. And so um, I also want to point out something else in verse 4. It says that he is proclaiming that he himself is God, is God. Now, he's called the Antichrist. Now, in English, when we hear the word anti, we say, oh, I know what anti means. Anti means against. And so, Antichrist means against Christ. Well, technically, that's not what that means. Because Antichrist comes from the Greek word antichristos. That's how we get Antichrist. It's very similar, remarkably similar to the Greek, antichristos. So we can't ask the word, cannot ask, what does anti mean in English? We really need to ask, what does anti, anti, mean in Greek? Technically, in its purest form, the purest definition means in the place of. Anti, Christos, in the place of Christ. Antichristos means that he is setting himself up in the place of Christ. And that's exactly what we see at the end of verse 4, proclaiming that he himself is God. He is setting himself up as God. That's what Antichrist means, in the place of God, in the place of Christ. Now, obviously, he is opposed to and he's against Christ, but technically he's opposed to him because he's setting himself up as if he were them. That's why he's opposed to him. Verse 5, don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you about this? So there's much that Paul talked about to the church at Corinth, uh, the church at Thessalonica about end times events that we don't have 
You know, all, all we see is what he wrote in First Thessalonians, and now what he, we see that he wrote in Second Thessalonians. But apparently, he shared quite a few things with them, and he said, "Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you about this? You know, you should not have gotten anxious and fearful because the things that I told you would have led you to believe that clearly Jesus has not come back yet. That there are things that need to happen before he comes back." Verse six. And you know what currently restrains him so that he will be revealed in his time. So the big question here is, okay, what is restraining or what will restrain the Antichrist? What will restrain him? What will hold him back? And then when that one who is holding him back moves out of the way, then the Antichrist can do what he wants to do. Who is the one holding him back? There's a lot of speculation about a lot of different things. I believe it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, <clears throat> when we think of the Holy Spirit, um, what we think about the Holy Spirit, when we think of him, uh, reveals much of how we see the Christian life. If we think that the Holy Spirit is some force or cloud out there, you know, some Holy Spirit who's just feeling the air all around us, and, and that's what he's doing, if that's our primary understanding of who the Holy Spirit is, is he's, he's out there, you know, outside of us, then we, we have a flawed view of the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our bodies, is the Holy Spirit outside of us? Well, I believe that he is, but I think that his work primarily is within us. And I wonder if it says that the one who is restraining him or holding him back, that when that one who is restraining moves out of the way, then the Antichrist is going to show up and going to do unspeakable evil, I think it's talking about the Christians who house the Holy Spirit within us. When the salt and, life leave, salt and light leave the earth, then, since God's Holy Spirit has gone with them, then unspeakable evil begins to happen in the tribulation period, exponentially worse in the second half of that. So he said, and you know what currently restrains him so that he, he will be revealed in his time. We have the Holy Spirit within us. The Holy Spirit is, is not necessarily some force out there somewhere. He is within us. We are the ones who are to restrain and push back on evil and moral decay. We are salt. We are light. But when Christians are taken out of the world in the rapture and the Holy Spirit goes with us, that's when evil begins to really take over. Verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now restraining will do so until he is out of the way. Now, that's what I was talking about, until he is out of the, out of the way. If, if this is the Holy Spirit, and if we are to understand that the Holy Spirit is primarily filling us, and we are salt, and we are light, and we are restraining, or the Holy Spirit literally is restraining through us by us being that force for good in the world, that whenever the rapture happens, God's Holy Spirit goes with us, then the man of lawlessness takes over at the tribulation period. Verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. And so this talks about Jesus' judgment. You want to read about the destruction of the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist? All you have to do is skip ahead to Revelation chapter 20. 
It's clearly there. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with every kind of miracle, both signs and wonders, serving the lie. So the lawless one is not going to be just just be a bad guy. I believe that the lawless one, the Antichrist, is going to be Satan-possessed, not even just merely demon-possessed, but Satan-possessed. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with every kind of miracle, both signs and wonders. And so he's going to be able to do all sorts of incredible stuff empowered by Satan himself. Serving the lie, verse 10, with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. So those who are perishing, who's that? It's the lost. They're not in hell yet, but they might as well be because they are doomed to that because they are refusing to trust in Jesus. And so he's going to be able to deceive them. And with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. Um Look at the end of verse 10. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. So whose fault is it that they are um, not only going to be in hell, but, uh, you know, literally kind of experiencing a little bit of it here. There's no joy in the Lord. There's the depravity. And have you ever looked at somebody who is living a good, clean, upright life? You know, whenever they smile, their smile is genuine. You look at somebody who's really, you know, going down some really bad roads and and what they think about and what they do, you know, they're, I mean, let's just go all out and say, you know, somebody that's doing drugs and somebody that's just chasing after all sorts of other things to try to fill up that vacuum in their heart. When they smile, they're not really smiling, right? And so they're kind of perishing already here. They're, they're demonstrating a foretaste of what hell's going to be like here. Why is it that they are perishing? It's because, verse 10, they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. It's their fault. It's their fault. They didn't trust in Jesus. It's not because God didn't choose them. It's because it's their fault. They didn't choose the Lord. This is man's side But then, let's look at verse 11, God's part. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie. And so God has a part as well. Um, I don't believe that God's act negates the, the person's responsibility, you know? God doesn't, God is sovereign, He does as He pleases, but He honors our free will And if someone chooses to not believe in Christ, God will honor that. What we see, I think, in verse 11 is that this is simply God's part. This, For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe a lie. So we see, as far as God is concerned, he is sending uh, a delusion among them so that they will believe a lie. Satan himself is sending signs and wonders and miracles through this man of lawlessness, this Antichrist, so that they would be deceived. But again, when you look at verse 10, ultimately whose fault is it that they are headed to hell? It's their fault because they did not believe. Verse 12, so that all will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth but delighted in unrighteousness. 
So I just want you to know that while we cannot fully figure this out, Satan is doing his work, but he's subservient to God. God gives him some free will, but God certainly has given him parameters. He has a fence around him, and he cannot get outside of that fence. Uh, We see that in Job when God gave, in the first two chapters of Job, God gave Satan permission to do certain things to Job, but God set up the parameters. You can do this, but you cannot do this. And so Satan's doing his thing. God is sovereignly ruling from heaven. And yet, in some way, as both of those are working, each person is responsible for their own decisions. They are perishing. They will spend eternity in hell because they chose not to believe. And so nobody on the day of judgment can look up at the Lord and say, I'm going to hell because you didn't choose me. No, there's nothing in Scripture that leads us to believe that. God is clearly uh, sovereignly reaching out and choosing. We see that language. But as far as people are concerned, they are going to hell. And as far as Jesus is concerned, John 3.18, I've referred to that quite a few times. As far as Jesus is concerned, people are condemned because they didn't believe. They didn't believe. And so these people in the tribulation have God who is sending them strong delusions. Satan is the one who is deceiving them. And yet they still have the capacity to trust, but they refuse to do so. So that was pretty negative and pretty dark. So let's finish up in verses 13 through 17. But we ought to thank God always for you, uh, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord. Oh, it's good to hear about love again, right? (laughs) It's good to hear about love after we've read about the tribulation and the darkness and everything that's just going on. Paul said, we ought to thank God always for you. We we have reason to thank God every single time we think of you, brothers and sisters, who are loved by the Lord. The Lord loves you. He loves you to death, literally to death on the cross. He said, because from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. And so here, once again, we see God's part that God has chosen you for salvation. God has chosen you for salvation. But, hypothetically speaking, if God chose and someone did not believe, if that were even possible, they are going to a place called hell because they did not believe. They did not believe. I really don't think that's possible, though, because when God reaches out to someone, they can't help but respond to that gracious gift of grace um, and not turn to the Lord. And so we read God's part. Um, God uh, you know, chose you for salvation, but then you get to the end of the verse, through belief in the truth. And so these people are saved because they believed. Not because God chose them, but because they believed. I don't want to diminish God's sovereignty. I don't want to diminish God's choosing. I just want us to realize that, you know, because I've just just heard for decades this debate between Calvinism and partial Calvinism and Arminianism and, you know, this whole thing. I, I believe the Bible clearly teaches God's sovereign choices and God's sovereign rule over creation. And yet, I literally do believe that there is no such thing as fatalism and determinism, that we really do have free choice. 
We really do have free choice. And so I just want to encourage you that instead of hopping on one side of the debate or the other, just believe both. God has his right to choose, and we have our responsibility to choose. Verse 14, he called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Be glorified with him. We're going to share in his glory. We are not God. We will never be God. And yet Jesus, who is God, will make us co-heirs with him, that we will enjoy his uh, splendor. You know, we will enjoy uh, much that he has to share with us when we get to heaven. And so we are going to be able to inherit heaven, as it were, because Jesus died in our place um, to make us fit for heaven. Verse 15, so then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. Um, hold on tightly. And I want you to know that, uh, that there's never been a time in church history where Christians we're not a generation away from losing uh, the faith, you know, within the, that nation. That every single generation has to defend the faith and stand up for the faith and def uh, clarify the faith and teach the faith. And so this whole thing of holding to the traditions, these traditions are not, you know, oh, whenever I was a kid, we sang out the hymnals. That's a tradition. That's not what these traditions are. The traditions are the truths of Scripture, the things that are true as revealed to us by the Lord and His Word. And so he said, I want you to not fall into apostasy. I want you to know God's Word. I want you to study God's Word, and I want you to hold on to it. Hold on to it. Verse 16. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, may he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. And so Paul was just praying that the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father, of course the Holy Spirit resides inside of them, would through this truth encourage their hearts and strengthen them in every good work and word and what they did and what they said. Um, Paul was just saying, okay, church at Thessalonica, you heard something that I said about end times events. You messed it up. You misunderstood. And so I just want you to realize that while I've corrected you, um, I want you to know that God's not disappointed in you. He loves you to death, and he wants to encourage you and help you grow in your faith, in what you were doing, and in how you are speaking. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that even as we read a little bit, just a little bit about the end time events and about the time of apostasy and the time of the Antichrist and how he's going to be ruled and uh, filled by Satan and how unspeakable wicked and deception is going to happen and people are going to be on their way to hell and uh, just all sorts of horrific things in the day of the Lord. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that we don't ever have to worry about that. We don't ever 
have to worry about that. Lord, we know that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ, even in the world today, are suffering great deals of persecution because they are following you. And a sinful world system despises them for it. Father, we pray for them and pray that you would give them courage and grace and strength. But Lord, as bad as it is, it's going to get infinitely worse. Thank you that none of us who are believers will, will face that. None of us will go through that. But Lord, help us not to keep this wonderful news of the gospel to ourselves. May we be ready to share the good news of the gospel with anyone that you put in our path and your Holy Spirit is just prompting us to share the good news with them. Father, I pray that we would just have the love in our heart for them that we should, that would cause us to step out and to share the greatest news they will ever hear. Father, we thank you so much for your word that, uh, that helps us to think right and behave correctly. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you next time.